number five, Discourtesy, sermon 530, preached in the First Presbyterian Church of Bakerstown, March 15, 1970. The text is 1 Corinthians 13.4, Love is not arrogant or rude. One of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible, the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. I may be able to speak the languages of men and even of angels, but if I have not love, my speech is no more than a noisy gong or a clanging bell. I may have the gift of inspired preaching. I may have all knowledge and understand all secrets. I may have all the faith needed to move mountains, but if I have not love, I am nothing. I may give away everything I have and even give up my body to be burned, but if I have not love, it does me no good. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or conceitful or proud. Love is not ill-mannered or selfish or irritable. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love is not happy with evil, but is happy with the truth. Love never gives up. Its faith, hope, and its patience never fail. Love is eternal. There are inspired messages, but they are temporary. There are gifts of speaking, but they will cease. There is knowledge, but it will pass. For our gifts of knowledge and of inspired messages are only partial, but when what is perfect comes, then what is partial will disappear. When I was a child, my speech, feelings, and thinkings were all those of a child. Now that I am a man, I have no more use for childish ways. When we see, or what we see now is like the dim image in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. What I know now is only partial, but then it will be complete, as complete as God's knowledge of me. Meanwhile, three things remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Beautiful. And in the Bible there are two love poems. One is in the Old Testament, it's called the Book of the Song of Solomon, and the other is the one that you've just heard in your reading, Paul's Hymn of Love, as it's found in 1 Corinthians. The former is a very frank but beautiful celebration of physical love, and this one which you have just heard is equally as beautiful, but it gives a deeper definition in trying to show how one is not loving unless he loves with all of his personality and unless that love can extend beyond one individual to, to all of mankind. Both poems have one thing in common. Both Paul and Solomon pause mid-flight in their thesis 
to try and warn us that love, like life, is made up of the little things and can be destroyed by little things. Paul's quite explicit when he said that love is made up of those little things of kindness and of patience. And if an individual demands to be involved in following those little practices of jealousies and conceit, arrogance, and rudeness, those little things will destroy what love others have for him, for his ability to love another. King Solomon tries to tell us that we must be very, very careful to see that some of those little foxes do not sneak in unobserved into our vine patches and ruin the fruit. He is trying to show us that it's the little things, you see, that gnaw away at the very roots of life. And we must be very careful so that a trivial habit, careless comments, or casual discourtesies do not ruin the very fabric of which life and love are made. So therefore it behooves us on this last day in dealing with the little foxes that spoil the vines to look at this little sly, small, but yet nevertheless very ferocious fox called discourtesy. This is the fifth little fox that we shall look at, and when you look at it with me through the biblical microscope, I think you will agree that discourtesy always finds its roots in one of three causes. When you think about it long enough, though it sounds foreign to the ear and wrong to the sense at first, I think you will realize that some discourtesy comes simply out of necessity. That's right. Sometimes we have no other choice but to be discourteous, even when perhaps we would rather be courteous. We must do this, for if we would not, we would be guilty of a far greater error than discourtesy. Let me illustrate. Sometime in an emergency, being courteous is the most discourteous thing that you can do or be. I can remember several years ago being in the audience with many ministers and elders of our United Presbyterian Church. It was a Presbyterian meeting. The issues were quite hot. The tempers were quite raw, and the poor moderator was having a very difficult time keeping order in that very tense meeting. And it was not because he did not know his rules of parliamentary procedure, it was simply because of the pressure and the tension of the hour. And while two men were busily engaged in debate, and most of us were involved vicariously on either one side or the other, the there happened in a very large sanctuary in which we were meeting a man standing in the last row asking for the floor. Mr. Moderator, Mr. Moderator, I can still hear him. And the moderator rapped with his gavel and always called that man in the last row out of order. 
But finally, when that man in the last row got to his feet and was able to speak, it was not to make a comment to the particular discussion, but was to ask the moderator to ask if there was a doctor in the house. It seemed the commissioner on his way to Presbytery had been stricken with a heart attack and lay critically ill in the corridor right outside where we were meeting. This man, you see, being courteous to the rules of Robert's law and order, was guilty of being discourteous to the preservation of a human life. And it would have been acceptable to all of us present that day if he would have burst into the conversation, run down the aisle, done anything. Even being most discourteous to try in this hour of emergency to get aid when it was needed. You see, sometimes it's necessary that we be discourteous, not only in cases of emergency, but also many times to remain honest. I'm sure it's happened to each one of us. We've been invited by a friend to come and hear him make a speech or to perform as an artist, or to participate on the athletic field, or in some arena, or perhaps merely to see him to conduct some form of meeting or function for which he has responsibility. We really don't want to go, but we feel obligated to go, and we do go, and we sit there, and after the meeting, or whatever it is that is over, we're very sorry that we attended for all that was evident in what we heard or saw, the only thing to which it gave evidence was that somebody had not done their homework, somebody was trying to do more than what they had ability to achieve, or someone had a bad day or a bad night and was not fulfilling all the potential of his or her talent. Yet we feel obligated to give some type of compliment. And we know that the person who has invited us is expecting the courtesy of a compliment. But if we give such a compliment, we would be guilty of perhaps a greater error. We would have to lie. We would have to be dishonest. So out of necessity, we are sometimes discourteous, or what appears to be discourteous, and we say nothing. Sometimes it's necessary to be discourteous to protect the truth and justice and to stand for what you know is right. I read not too long ago about an interview that had been granted to Dr. Reinhold Niebuhr. In some eyes, the man who is one of the giants of all theologians in this 20th century. And Dr. Niebuhr was asked what he thought of that new breed of thinkers in that particular day, those popular theologians, the God-is-dead thinkers. And after contemplating the question for a few minutes, this was Dr. Niebuhr's reply, I think they're stupid. Now that's not very courteous, is it? it certainly isn't very polite. But this man was speaking, you see, because he believed in truth, he believed in what is right, 
And he thought that if some people were not discourteous to some of the vulgar and inconsistent thinkings of other people, they would be doing a great disservice to God and to the study of God's word and God's law. Now, he said this not merely out of reaction, as so many of us speak very discourteously. He did it out of reason. He said, I think that they are stupid because they do not realize that all religious affirmations are merely symbolic. They have no system of coherence, and they have neither digested the age-old problems of Christology, nor do they understand existentialism. Now, maybe all of us do not agree with his reasons, but one thing that we must say, they are reasons and not reactions. And ladies and gentlemen, whenever you stand before reactions that are built upon half-truths or upon hatred or upon ugly prejudice, and you remain courteous to those comments, you are being discourteous to God, to truth, to justice, and to what is right. You see, sometimes, though, maybe we don't want. We find it a necessity to be discourteous. But strange as it may sound, I notice that within rational, calm-thinking, truth-searching individuals, this type of discourtesy is always acceptable. We understand it. And though it may not apply to the rules of what is considered the best of manners, it's accepted in the best company because sometimes we all realize that it's necessary to be discourteous. But then there's another root stem of discourtesy which is not acceptable, but thank God it's excusable. It is the one which stems from what I call accident or from the realm of the unintentional, where something happens, where we say something, where if we would have only known a little bit more about the situation or about the people or about the conditions, we would not have said it or we would not have done it. This particular discourtesy stems not from necessity, but rather from ignorance. Granted, we should know better, but so many times we think after we speak or after we act. And sometimes these jokes that we tell that have ethnic significance or religious or racial overtones, you know, sometimes in some companies they would have been left much better unsaid. But nevertheless, we say them, and sometimes we tramp on somebody's foot, innocently, but the hurt's still there. Sometimes we say some things meaning to do very well, but in reality, in the eyes of the one who is the recipient, and in the eyes and in the vision of those who are merely standing on the sidelines, it appears 
on our part to be nothing more than an act of discourtesy. And then some friend takes us aside and tries to point up how this looks or how this sounds to somebody who has a different background or different environment than perhaps we have known. What do we always say? I'm sorry. If only I had known, I would have never said such a thing. Or I'd never done this or that. There is some ignorance in these accidental or unintentional discourtesies. And though they may not be acceptable, thank God they are excusable. But then there's a third root cause for discourtesy. I thought a long, long time before I named it, and the best descriptive term that I could find is just plain, old-fashioned, selfish discourtesy. But yet this is divided into two branches. I really think that there are some people in life who are very selfishly discourteous to wife, to husband, to children, to employers, employees, friends. And they don't even know it. Really, they, they are completely blind to being aware of, of what their selfishness is doing in a discourteous way to someone else. You know the type. You see him out here on the highway every day. You meet him in traffic in town. He's in practically every elevator and either in front of you or in back of you of some revolving door. I even see him once in a while out here at the coat rack after church on Sunday when you're in a hurry to get out of here. You know the individual, the one who has spent so much of his life concentrating upon self that he doesn't even know when he is blatantly and brutally riding over the feelings, the hopes, the dreams, the rights of other people. This man does not need to be censured as much as he needs to be pitied. For he cannot see as God sees him. But the guy who really bothers me is that individual who is conscious of his selfish discourtesy. Someone who deliberately attempts usually for the sake of getting even, plans and fulfills that plans of being, fulfills that plan of being discourteous to someone else. That soul is a very frightening individual. He ought to be very frightening to you, that individual who feels so hurt and so wounded that he plans on how he can ignore another child of God and act as though that other person isn't even there. Oh, oftentimes when he is called for such rude action, he'll try to make it out that he is being discourteous out of necessity, or he'll try to pretend that it was unintentional, but so many times it's not. This thing is eating like a cancer in that individual. 
and because of it he is living his life with a deficient heart. He is living his life more limited than an individual who has had the worst of heart attacks. Because you see, this particular heart which God has given to us is not just to serve as a muscle to pump blood through the arteries of one individual, but it's also there to pump love through the veins of all the human race. And if we have not got that, and if we deliberately try to keep ourselves from loving another person, we're living on only half of a heart, and we're only half the person that God would want us to be, and we're in sad shape. Any individual who attempts to live in this way is despicable in God's kingdom. And whoever is guilty of this particular fault will find that this error is not only unacceptable in God's kingdom, it's unexcusable and almost unforgivable. But you say, yes, this individual, he flaunts around so brazenly. He's an individual who has hurt me and hurt somebody else. He ought to be ignored from the human race. That is not for us to decide. And granted, it is hard to try to love someone who is unlovable. But the Bible never told us anywhere, nor will the Spirit of God ever tell us any differently, that it's not supposed to be hard or easy. It is difficult. Where did you ever get the idea that forgiving a man or a person seventy times seven was easy? Where did you ever get the idea that turning the other cheek would not be difficult? Loving an unlovable person is probably the most difficult thing in the world, and it costs you. Someone has said that politeness is cheap. Don't believe it. That's a lie. And if you don't believe me, then just try to be polite in a telegram or a transatlantic cable. See how much your bill is increased when you use words like thank you and please. Young boy was writing a telegram or sending a telegram to his best girl. He didn't know what to say, so he wrote, I love you, I love you, I love you. Tom. The clerk, in reading it over, said, Fine, sir, but in your main message you only have nine words. You can get ten for the same price. So he changed his message. I love you. I love you. I love you. Regards, Tom. <laughs> now we laugh. But you know, that man was more right than we give him credit. Because you see, unless your love has regard in it, for the other person, no matter how unlovable he may be. It's not love. Love costs. And ladies and gentlemen, when, whenever, whenever we feel as though we are being discourteous to someone, let us ask the question, is it out of necessity? Maybe we will find that our action or our words have, have stemmed from 
the unintentional. Maybe perhaps it is, though, because it comes from our selfishness. And when someone is discourteous to us, let us ask the same questions. And maybe we will find there the opportunity to love a person who is so very selfish that in showing us his discourtesy, we may find that we can give to him the courtesy of our love. But today we finish chasing the little foxes that spoil the vines. For five Sundays we've tried to look at some of those that are perhaps hampering your life and my life from finding its fulfillment. Perhaps we could end all of it by saying there's one cure or one way of getting rid of these little foxes. And that's by loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, loving your neighbor as yourself. This is not easy. It's very difficult. But let's see if we can go out and get those foxes. Remember when the disciples wanted to follow Jesus, Jesus said unto them, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the sky have nests. But the Son of Man hath no way, no place to lay his head. He wants to lay his head right here in each one of us. But some of us are flying around off the ground like birds going here and there. And yet others of us do not allow him in because we're too foxy. Folks, foxes belong in the holes of the ground. Let us bury them, and let us cover them over with the greatest thing that there ever has been, is now, or ever will be in the whole wide world. Love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we've enjoyed these trips. We hope that we have been beneficial, not only to the kingdom, but to the children of the kingdom. Help all of us, Lord, as we chase those evils in our life that we can so well do without, and help us to plant anew the spirit of right and of truth and of love, for we can do it only as thy seed comes in and dwells in our hearts, is watered by thy Spirit, and is given growth by thy grace. And now may the Spirit of our Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore.